The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And that is kind of the magic of the blockchain is that I can send you value, I can send you money in the form of cryptocurrency, and you can receive it within minutes without having another trusted intermediary in the middle. And that is really the beginning. That is the foundation. And that opens up so many possibilities going forward. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. Back to another edition of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Becali, your host. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to roll on, not only as a health pandemic, but more and more as an economic and financial crisis, globally speaking. And that really made me think about the last big crisis I personally lived through, maybe you as well. And yes, it is the financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, which we are in many ways still trying to overcome overcome and digest. And then the theme being from crisis to creation, I thought, okay, what was created back then? A positive outcome potentially out of that crisis. And that made me think, of course, one technology that came up that promised no more financial crisis. It's going to be a peer-to-peer decentralized technology that promises immutability and something that is not only incorruptible, but protecting you and I and everybody involved in a global economy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, it is the blockchain. Together with that, we also have to look at Bitcoin and, of course, Satoshi Nakamoto, who invented the Bitcoin run on the blockchain. So I thought, okay, where are we? 11 years onwards, where's the blockchain technology? Is it still just theory? Do we see application? And has it gone mainstream? How will the COVID-19 crisis really impact the status quo of the blockchain and also the future? And who better to ask then? We're one of the pioneers, avant-gardists and investors in that particular sector. And he's also an author, William Mugayar. And he, back already in 2016, already came up with a fundamental book. If you want to know about the basics of blockchain and where it may take you personally, you want to be reading his book, The Business Blockchain, Promise, Practice and the Application of the Next Internet Technology. William, amazing to have you here on Mentory TV. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Patricia. How are you? I'm very good. Having you on the show is really amazing. I've been following you for quite some time, of course, being a little bit of a tech geek myself. But let me ask you, first of all, before we go into something that 
till this day might be more of a mystery than an applic applicable technology. How did you get so involved in the blockchain technology and perhaps even infused to the point that you even wrote a book about it? Yes. So I first became aware of the blockchain and Bitcoin in 2011. But at the time, I was busy running my own startup. So I kind of put that thought aside uh, throughout uh, all of 2012. At the end of 12, I sold my startup. And in the early 2013, I had a bit more time on my hands and started to become more uh, curious about the blockchain and Bitcoin specifically. At the time, uh, Bitcoin was more of a, the headline than the blockchain. And it was this new cryptocurrency. So I started to read just about everything about it. Uh, and um, at the end of 13, I started to become involved in the local meetups uh, where I live, which is Toronto. And uh, I was lucky that uh, uh, Vitalik Buterin the co-founder, the main uh, instigator behind Ethereum, uh, lived in Toronto and uh, was part of those meetups. And that's when I met him. And uh, it dawned on me when he started to explain uh, Ethereum uh, to me, uh, I very quickly realized that this was a big thing, that this was not just a small technology, that this was of the scale of uh, what the internet gave us uh, back in the early 90s. So I decided to dive into it and uh, I made it uh, my, my goal and my lifetime uh, basically passion to uh, try to explain it to others because it took me a lot of pains to understand it myself. Yeah. And uh, I had... You admitted that in your book, saying, oh my God, it took me a while. It, it, and I was lucky that I, I had a similar experience with the internet uh, in the early 90s. I had written a prior book called Opening Digital Markets in uh, 97. And that was the result of my early involvement with the internet in 94 and 93. And um, now we take it for granted, but at the time it was not so obvious. We had to explain the internet to people. Uh, we had to explain it to businesses, to corporations. We had to explain what e-commerce was. And uh, we are still uh, today in, in this uh, phase of explaining it to, to the masses. Yeah, and I think this is really um, what we want to focus on in our conversation, William, and that is we don't want to have like a geeky conversation about some sort of technology, but really try to kind of bridge uh, the, the technology guys, the geeks that really use it on an everyday basis and whoever may be touched by if it goes and once it goes really mainstream. And you touched on the internet there and that introducing this new technology, which actually is only an evolution, I guess, blockchain on from the internet, running on the internet, not necessarily on the web, but on the internet. And for that, let me share one of the very um, insightful, I thought, graphics in your book, defining really um, what, what is happening here, the defining the technology eras. And you've referred to, we are going through innovations. And, uh, you know, change, unless there's pain for us humans, is really something we are almost too comfortable to deal with. Can you quickly sum up here are these three different areas you put on that slide. Yes, so, so before the internet, um, technology was really in the corporate sense uh, about um, controls from the IT group, the information technology group. And, and they, they were the 
holders of the databases. Everything was centralized, transaction processing, uh, data intelligence, um, everything was really about private networks. Uh, the internet made all of this public. And if you remember, one of the first applications of the internet uh, back in 94 was when FedEx uh, allowed uh, us, anybody, to track their packages on the internet. Uh, prior to that, if you remember, if some of you were old enough to remember, we had to call on the phone and, and, and uh, talk to somebody to track a package. And for the first time, they allowed you to just enter your tracking number and, and follow that package on the internet. And all they had to do was make those databases that they already had, these information systems, they were there. All they had to do was to make them available publicly to the consumers. And that was the internet that facilitated that. So that was the paradigm shift, the, the kind of the moment that started the era of, of the internet years, where it gave us personal communications, self-publishing, e-commerce, social interactions. And the point of this uh, slide and the point of this depiction is, uh, I think you kind of posed a question to me earlier, which is, what is the mental model that we are in for the blockchain today. And the mental model that we're in today, unfortunately, is that we are still trying to understand it. We are still trying to understand it by explaining it, by explaining the theory of it and what it does. And contrast this to the internet. If I, we, we don't explain what the internet is anymore. Uh, I'm talking about the mainstream uh, public at this point. Uh, if you ask somebody uh, about the internet, they talk about the internet in terms of how they use it as opposed to what it is. So for some people, it is about email communications. For others, it's a form of self-expression via publishing, whether it's a blog or something more elaborate. For others, it's e-commerce. It's really about buying and selling. Uh, for others, it's social interactions, small snippets every day, whether it's posting a photo on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. And that's really, for them, how they talk about the usage of the Internet. So, unfortunately, today, we are not at that level with the blockchain. We can't talk to the masses and say and ask them, what do you use the blockchain for? Because most of the mainstream today does not even understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I think this, you're, you're alluring to our you know, user experience. And once we are not only see the benefits of whatever new disruptive technology is being introduced, but also that it makes us feel good or it makes us more present to other people, like, for example, with the self-publishing, we are starting to see, okay, there is something in it, and we're starting that adoption process, first mentally and then also in terms of using where you then go from something Exclusive to commodity. But in terms of application, there is something again uh, in your book which I thought was maybe helpful for somebody who doesn't really know the definition of blockchain. Yes, you call it a peer to peer electronic ledger, decentralized, uh, and you know, there are so many words being thrown in a pot, and each one of them sometimes confusing more than other. I think the first application we've seen back in 2009 was really digital currencies um, that can't be touched, that can't be burned necessarily uh, around the globe because it may travel with you is one of those applications. That, that starts to make sense. But here you have three definitions which are important in order to say, here's an application for blockchain and there's a totally other one. And unless you're in that uh, sector 
or you are doing business or legal stuff, you might not necessarily feel that it makes a difference or benefit to your life. Yes, the, the other analogy with the internet is that the blockchain is about many different things in the same way as the internet is about many different things. And because it is many different things, it takes a longer time for us to understand it. And I summarized it into the three, three areas that it touches. So if you look at it from a technology perspective, uh, you can think of it as a replacement to a database. It's a different kind of database. And without getting too technical, the databases are really where you store the data. It's really the main, the backbone for all of the applications that big companies run on. Anything runs on a database because data is the source of, of information. And it's the force of, it's the, the really what's behind us using this information. So it's another way of storing data. And I don't want to go into more details than that. The second uh, aspect, if you look at it from a business perspective, it's really about moving value between two people, between two entities. And the, force, the first form of value is currency, is money. So the first form of value that the blockchain is giving us is currency, but in the form of crypto. Currency. And we use the word crypto because it is secured by very highly cryptographic mathematical constructs that make it very secure. Obviously, if we're talking about money, it has to be secure. Uh, if, if I'm sending you one dollar, one euro, one pound, or one thousand pounds, you want to be sure that it's going to arrive a hundred percent. And the third aspect is that it has to be legal. It has to be legally ex accepted. So it's it's also a, a validation mechanism for the transaction to say, yes, it has arrived. Uh, yes, I no longer own this money. You are now the owner of this money. Uh, and uh, we don't need the bank to validate this ownership because today most of our accounts go via the bank. If the bank says, I don't have the money, then I don't have it. If the bank says, I have the money, I have it. Once it arrives in your account, only they validate that uh, arrival time. But with the blockchain, we don't need the bank to be in the middle. Basically, uh, we get this validation via the network automatically. And that is kind of the magic of the blockchain is that I can send you value, I can send you money in the form of cryptocurrency, and you can receive it within minutes without having another trusted intermediary in the middle. And that is really the beginning. That is the foundation. And that opens up so many possibilities going forward. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the idea of decentralized, of course, that is a kind of gut reaction when you think that a centralized system, which we're having right now still in the financial system, uh, dominating us. Okay, decentralized. Let's kind of be more democratic. To many people, it's freedom and what you're just describing, uh, and a sense of security. For others, it's total anarchy. Now, why does decentralization generate trust? And why can we trust a, crypt, you know, a cryptography uh, more than a human being that is on the other side that we know on the other side of a banking teller? Again, you can look at it from different uh, perspectives and give many reasons. One of them is transaction costs. It's, uh, it's more expensive when you have people in the middle. 
the banks are not doing this from the goodness of their hearts. Uh, they are charging us fees. Um, they, we, we pay for it. Maybe not up front, maybe in the back end. We pay for it. So they need infrastructure to, to, to facilitate uh, this trust. And um, uh, banks have branches. Um, they have a big uh, infrastructure behind them, and that costs money. So that's where, that's one, one aspect. Second aspect is, is time. I mean, it takes time uh, because of this infrastructure uh, that is huge. There is latency. There is delays. Um, and, uh, and sometimes um, being more real-time is better than waiting and not knowing whether your transaction has been validated or not. I know some countries have made progress and they have real-time um, validation and uh, real-time finalities, but it's not... Uh, worldwide it's not global and if they have uh, that it's at the at very extreme costs uh, it is very uneven uh, and it's it's very complicated uh, the the global financial system today uh, is very complicated it's it's made up of proprietary systems that are interconnected with each other uh, with very difficult um, uh, ways and uh, what the blockchain does it facilitates all of that if we don't need an intermediary, why use it? Why use that intermediary? So uh, gradually, gradually, slowly, the blockchain is going to be uh, replacing some of these transactions uh, so that they become peer-to-peer -peer from, from one entity to another without having a third intermediary in the middle uh, be the uh, the... the be the, the node or be the party that uh, has to validate these transactions because exactly. it's not necessary, really. Yeah, and it's being costly. And in your book, also, you made a comparison between Airbnb and creating trust and uh, creating trust with a blockchain. Um, yeah, the, the example of Airbnb is, is uh, in a way, it exposes, it exposes the reputation of uh, those that you are uh, renting from, um, so um, the the it's 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 that kind of uh, analogy. Uh, when the reputation is exposed, when there's transparency, uh, then the trust is gained uh, because you know who you're dealing with. And uh, what Airbnb has showed us is that um, you you can expose uh, uh, trust, and and then uh, and it it makes people believe in it uh, more. Uh, going forward. Yeah. And what I was, uh, you, you said earlier, you know, a database and this electronic ledger. Let's, let's see why that makes the, the blockchain so special and why this electronic ledger is actually quite different to just a database. And that might be also what people might not necessarily understand when it comes to the block <laughs> technology. Um, can you, can you uh, explain a little bit why that makes a difference, that electronic ledger and what happens in real time to everybody involved on the chain? The difference between a database and the blockchain, to try to make it uh, a bit simpler here, is that uh, with a database, somebody has to own the database. Uh, and somebody is a person or is a company, usually an entity. And they have control uh, on what goes in the database and what goes outside of the database. And as a result of that, uh, there are delays that occur. Because again, back to the example of 
between my bank and your bank. So my bank has to wait for your bank uh, to give the authorization that yes, the money has been received. And now you can remove the money from my account. Actually, they remove it right away. They put it in a special bucket. And before they put it in your account, they wait until your bank has approved this. So all of this takes like many different steps and somebody has to approve this in the database that the company has to do that. And, and this is a lot of delays. What the blockchain does, it, it uses the concept of the ledger. The ledger is like a spreadsheet. Think of the accounting ledger. What happens in an accounting ledger? There's one line, you write a line, and then you write the line under it, but you never cross out the line above it. Once you write the line, that's it. You cannot cheat and then cross it out. Uh, everything is there forever and you can go and trace the history of these transactions. So not only is it a ledger, but it's a ledger that anybody has access to. Yeah. So instead of relying on a database, why don't we use a ledger, but just one ledger for both of, of us, for, so that this transaction can happen once. So when I remove it, when, it's, when the money is gone from my account, automatically it goes straight to your account because it's one ledger. And it's like, this, this is kind of the breakthrough of the blockchain, is allowing us to all be part of this on the same page, basically. Yeah. And not on multiple databases, multiple pages. Yeah, and this is really when my penny dropped a few years ago. I thought, oh my God, that makes total sense because I thought about the blockchain like, okay, we are in a club. We are all peers and we might be the two of us. We might be five, but we are on the same ledger and whatever William is changing on that ledger, be it in information, putting it in or crossing it out, putting something else in A, that will stay forever, as you said, and B, we are all on the same page, we are all being informed because the next time I look, I see, okay, William five minutes ago did something and then you see, okay, Patricia changed something on the ledger forever, will it be recorded and everybody's informed right there and then. And that is the transparency, right? Yes, yes. The trust now becomes in the network, in the computation, uh, in, in, in the blockchain, which is really a number of computers that are doing this for us. Okay, <laughs> which makes me think, okay, a computer is more trustworthy than a human being. But talking about trust and taking it a step further, William, regulation, decentralization, it always is kind of okay. So if it's decentral, who's looking after whatever rules they need to be? And it seems there is an evolution when it comes to trying to regulate, especially digital money. Uh, and, and what is being handled with the blockchain. Tell us a little bit about the different velocity in development in regulation, let's say from the States to here, we are in crypto country in Switzerland and maybe also to Asia. What is, what is the re regulatory status right now? Yeah, the role of the regulators is very important uh, today and in the future for the blockchain because the blockchain, the essence of it is financial transactions. And in, in the Western world, every country has a regulatory body. And in most countries, there, there are regulatory bodies, whether in some cases, it's a central bank that dictates uh, the monetary policy and, and uh, dictates um, the regulatory framework. In others, there is a, uh, an entity that does that. In Switzerland, it's FINMA. In the US, it's the SEC. In Canada, it's the OSC. And it goes on from there. And uh, it's important for the regulators to, to bring clarity 
uh, about their position in terms of the blockchain. And uh, the countries where this clarity has been provided, uh, and Switzerland is a great example, uh, where clarity has been provided. Singapore is another example where clarity has been provided. You see cases where the blockchain is prospering and where companies are feeling more comfortable innovating around this clarity. In other places, like in the U.S., uh, where there is still a little bit of, well, not a little bit, there is a lot of uncertainty into uh, what uh, can be done, uh, what is legal, what is not legal, uh, whether we apply old frameworks from 1932 or not, or whether the SEC is willing to update their views and acknowledge that this is a new thing here, that we have to really think in a different way and not just say, well, this, everything is a security. Therefore, we have to apply the old rules of uh, securities laws, uh, which is a high stepping stone for entrepreneurs. And, um, and, and that is really why uh, regulators can can make or break the future of the blockchain. Uh, so right now we're still in this phase where uh, big countries are, still have a lot of uncertainty and it's not a very good thing. Um, and the reason for that uh, in, in many cases is that uh, the regulators that have taken the time to really understand the blockchain and those that have taken the time to really get a deep understanding of it, uh, have, are coming to realize that, yes, there is something new. And those that are not taking the time to understand it deeply, uh, they are brushing it off and saying, well, this is not, not, not much new here, that we can apply the old rules to it. Yeah. And, and that's where the flaw is. Yeah, and the flaw, I guess, is also very easy to see if you think about that blockchain being from peer-to-peer -peer does wipe out a whole part of what is a trusted economy uh, or trusted sector, which is the financial sector, taking out a lot of intermediaries, uh, meaning also potential job positions. But coming back to regulation in the sense of putting regulation on a newborn. You know, we both have children, I guess. So, you know, there you have your newborn child, the new technology, and it is, as it grows, it moves, and it starts to, you know, have certain characteristics which you don't know as you push on potential regulation. Now, there must be a fine balance between, okay, having an evolution going on within something like a disruptive technology, at the same time, constantly adjusting also with the regulatory process, because there's no one answer. I mean, look at the internet. You know, you were right in there writing books back, I think, in 93 about the uh, internet. And we are now talking still about, uh, you know, privacy laws on the internet. What can be published? How can it be published? Uh, how to, you know, kind of regulate or even find out about the darknet. So it is a fluid issue, regulation. It must be. Yes, it's a good analogy about uh, the blockchain being almost like a baby and, uh, this has been done with the internet as well. Again, the analogy of the internet strikes again. You cannot regulate a technology that is still in its infancy. And the reason why the internet and internet commerce prospered in the mid-90s is because the U.S., which was the leading country at the time, uh, decided not to regulate the 
internet too early. Uh, they did the opposite. They said, let the thousand flowers bloom and let's see what happens with e-commerce. And then later, when it's more mature, we can regulate it. And the same should be applied for the blockchain today. Um, there are areas where we are not sure what is really going to happen. Um, yes, we don't want fraud. We don't want uh, bad actors to uh, be dominating. But at the same time, we don't want to stifle innovation. Uh, so there's a fine line between uh, trying to control the bad things, at the same time trying to let the good things uh, emerge. And, and that is really where uh, the smart regulators will walk that fine line and allow the innovation to happen because we are still in the very baby steps of the blockchain. It doesn't have a lot of users yet. The blockchain has not reached mainstream. Uh, we are still probably in the 95 to 97, 98 maximum time frame of where the internet was back when it started. Yeah. So we we need to let let give him give more breathing room uh, for the blockchain to prosper. And, and if you think about the evolution of any kind of you know invention, I mean, look at Nick Sabo. He came through with the first concept of smart contract, and now and I'm a total you know I, I don't know anything about it, but from the little I read, is anything that is smart is kind of put on the blockchain. So the idea of having smart contracts which has been more and more realized by Ethereum and Vitalik, together perhaps also with you, Develop, is, is a new concept. But when I talk to people about smart contracts, they don't really know what that means, what a smart contract is, never mind the real benefits on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good name. Uh, it's a catchy name, but all it is, it's business logic with money in it. So it's really, if this, then that. So if this happens, then this other thing will happen. And in many cases, there's some money involved. So you and I can have a bet on the weather or on a sports team winning. And instead of doing it face-to-face -face and calling each other or emailing and looking at the results, let's say, or the weather temperature, we can encode, we can encode this into a smart contract that says, if the weather tomorrow in Zurich is 15 degrees and you said you called it, you win. And if I said it's going to be less than 15 degrees, then I win. What if we link uh, the money in it? So I put 100 uh, francs in it and you put 100 francs. And automatically, we don't have to do anything. There is a, another program that checks the temperature automatically. There is no debate. I mean, at 12 o'clock, we're going to look. It will be very clear what the temperature is. If it's 15.5, you win. If it's 14.5, I win. Automatically, either one of us is going to re receive 100 francs more. Yeah, absolutely. And you know... Uh, automatically. That is the key thing. Automatically. And William, that really reminds me a little bit of the algorithms in trading systems. You have certain metrics. If the market hits A, B, C, then you buy or you sell or something happens or your fund uh, structure changes simply because these metrics have been hit. And this is now at the, at the human level. Imagine we can do this. And I haven't seen this yet. Unfortunately, all the smart contract developers are very geeky. I mean, I love them, but they are very... <laughs> technical and they are so enamored by their technology 
that sometimes they forget that the user experience is very important for bringing this technology to the masses. And you have to make it very easy. You have to lower the barriers uh, so that people like you and I, with not knowing anything about technology, make it as easy as posting a photo on Instagram. Yeah. Make it as easy as posting two lines on Facebook or on Twitter. And we're not there yet, unfortunately. And that wraps up the first part of our conversation about blockchains with William Mugayar. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.